0: michael waits media okay we're on hi this is michael waits and welcome back to the wolfcast we are happy to have oliver lane the head of Dealflow. god i wish i had that job at one point in my life at insurtech gateway in london joining us today oliver thank you so much for coming on the show how are you doing today
1: hi michael great thanks Brilliant to be here. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Yeah, it's awesome to have you. Let's get a bit of your background for context before we move into the rest of our discussion.
1: Um, yeah, so I'm Oliver Lane, um, investor at Chilcotay Gateway. Uh, we're a pre-seed and seed incubator and fund. But I guess prior to that, um, my career started in investment banking in both London and New York. So I've been, you know, a part of that large corporate machine with, with thousands of employees, focusing on various sectors and, and teams. And now I've joined a sector specialist on the, on the fifth year. So that transition has been, I guess, really exciting. We're trying to push forward one of the world's largest financial ecosystems in a, in a more innovative direction. Um, and yeah, we, we, we invest at that pre-seed and, and seed stage. So the a really kind of inception stage of, of the InsurTech vertical. My, my job is meeting with six to 700 founders in the InsurTech space every year. And then, I guess, deciding which ones of those to back and incubate and invest in.
0: Wait, if you're meeting with six to 700 insure tech founders every year, if there are 252 business days, that's like two or three people every day that you're talking about this stuff. I want to back up and ask kind of two questions at the same time. What is it maybe more specifically or in more detail that keeps you so interested in insurance and insure tech? and do you feel like you're getting a day-to-day kind of master's degree in insurance if that makes sense
1: yeah it's a, it's a great question what, what keeps me kind of excited about it is you know we focus on one vertical and every day i'm constantly surprised that kind of the variety and innovation within yeah. the space i think it's an absolutely massive problem within the insurance ecosystem i guess you know um an inability to innovate in the past has, has created this massive opportunity for for insuretechs to attack, um, either attacking their market share, but also augmenting with the insurers, which I find a, quite an interesting dynamic. But yeah, absolutely, feel constantly learning, um, and and yes, it's a it's a busy job. We don't meet with every single one, um, but that's kind of the the volume that we
0: meet. Um, but this is another really interesting topic. Actually, there was an idea a few years ago. And you mentioned this, so I want to just, again, dig a little bit deeper, but that insure techs were trying to disrupt incumbent companies and maybe even destroy them. And do you think that based on all of the work that you're doing here, that the environment is maybe more cooperative than competitive as opposed to adversarial than it was like three or four years ago?
1: Absolutely. Um, I feel insurance is, is a, or insure tech is, is kind of a different space from, I guess, other fintech verticals in that. Especially for risk carrying type of propositions or underwriting propositions, you, you almost need the incumbents, right? Yeah. especially from a, a risk perspective. So, you know, the majority of, of propositions that we speak to are, are looking to, to augment and at least work with the, the incumbents from the start. I guess their, their end goal is always to, to try and become a carrier themselves on underwriting propositions.
0: But can you explain to people that may not know so well, just how important that underwriting capacity is and maybe the role of reinsurers in the insurance space?
1: Absolutely. So as an early stage proposition, you won't look to carry any risk. You'll look to kind of um, improve the underwriting process or the distribution of, a, of an insurance line. Um, so you would look for a, a carrier and a reinsurer to, to essentially hold or carry the, the risk behind that and that takes of the economics. But to to access some of those carriers, there's a dog going on behind me, um, it it can be incredibly difficult. A lot of these early stage MGA's or or digital brokers will look to partner with uh, the insurance world and and carriers to to help them scale quickly um, across their different product lines.
0: Yeah, I mean, in a way, they almost have to, right? This whole idea of capacity, they need the capacity to be able to do this. They can't do it on their own. Because just to create a balance sheet that's big enough and robust enough and dynamic enough to be able to do that would be impossible in the time it takes to build a typical insure tech at scale, yeah.
1: Absolutely. I think there's a, there's been only a couple of examples where people have gone on to raise a balance sheet from, from the get go was one in France, Allen, I believe. But getting that license initially, not only from a, a capacity perspective, but also regulatory, right? Sure. It's, it's a huge, a huge task to to get through that approvals process. And then yeah you're right you need to have a lot of risk capital given by investors or elsewhere without really proving out your product in, in in a market so you don't know what your underwriting potential would be before you get there.
0: Do you as a team maintain a relationship with the London market so with like one of the biggest sort of marketplaces for insurance not just in Europe but in the world right?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, as part of our incubator platform, um, we've actually built out a panel of insurers and reinsurers that we work with. Uh, the gateway is backed by uh, global reinsurers, so we, we have that kind of active dialogue with innovative insurers and reinsurers that we look to to accelerate or catalyse the relationship for our underlying portfolio, um, because we see that as a core. I'll talk about it in a second. Uh, yeah. that kind of core barrier to entry with, within insurance vertical. Uh, we look to try and overcome that. And I guess that's why we're we're called the gateway, the kind of gateway into into that risk cap.
0: I love it. Can you please explain actually this idea that there is an incubator and a fund combined together and just how that gives you an edge, like how those things work together really well, how it gives your team at Gateway, and I love the fact that you just call it gateway for short, an edge, and also the portfolio companies it supports, right? Because- I mean, there are so many questions here, but to a certain extent, if you want to invest in company, in insurance tech company A or B, there must be other people that want to invest in it as well. And investors have started to differentiate themselves. Talk to me about the differentiation that that structure gives you.
1: Sure. So I guess the first the first layer of why we differentiate is our sector focus. We're a yeah. team of of insurance experts as there's over 70, 80 years of insurance. Um, knowledge and expertise on the team plus technologists plus I guess people like me and I guess that sector focus provides a kind of an education piece that we're kind of knowledgeable on the space already from the get-go but from a platform and an incubator piece I guess we're unique in the fact that we saw that regulatory hurdle and the capacity hurdle that's that's quite significant in the early life cycle of an insurtech right so what we did is from an incubator standpoint We've got the FCA, the UK regulator to give us permissions to launch an InsurTech to market. So if you were to go out on your own, to get your own regulatory licenses, it can take anything from nine to 18 months often to get your own independent authorization to launch, to legally sell insurance products. However, we have created an umbrella structure within our incubator that allows us to launch InsurTech in under two weeks. So we see our, you know, our, I guess, core thesis is, is the fastest place to launch an InsurTech idea. And that, that regulatory speed bump at the start is hugely is accelerated um, through that our platform.
0: That's actually a really big deal. I mean, I saw this stuff on the FCA, but I wasn't sure what the significance of it was and was going to ask you. But let me make sure I understand this. So you have an umbrella entity that allows you to take your investee companies basically underneath that umbrella. And if they want to do regulated activities, you've already created an entity where they can do those regulated activities because that Gateway itself is already approved by the FCA to be able to do that?
1: Correct. Yeah. So we act as almost a sandbox for them yeah. to start off. You know, we only did it purely to get them to market and prove out a model or product market fit. And it, it, obviously the end goal is for them to be independently authorized because we take on I guess, some of the compliance elements of that. But at least initially, absolutely, we, we provide that umbrella state. It's called an, an AR, an authorized representative of, of the gateway.
0: That's a big differentiator, no?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've we've got 20 portfolio companies and the vast majority have kind of been through that incubator model and, and taken on our AR permissions. Um, so it's a huge catalyst, at least in the early stages, to to get you to market and especially from a kind of cost perspective, right? It's uh, it's hugely ad- advantageous.
0: And are you just investing in the UK or are you investing globally? Like what's the market focus here?
1: Yeah, so from the London office, we look to invest across Europe and North America. I think definitely with the kind of advent of, of remote, you know, we're, we're very much open to propositions globally now. Um, I think, you know, obviously our permissions are only relevant within the UK market. Um, so that has maybe some differentiated there, but... We're, we're open to global propositions.
0: So when you look at the insure tech market and even the insurance market in the spaces where you invest, can you just comment sort of on a high level, how would you characterize the state of the insure tech space just from a maturity standpoint, a use of technology standpoint? I mean, any way you want to look at it, how would you characterize it today?
1: Sure. I think very generally people have started to take note, especially from the venture side. Yeah. There's been an absolute explosion of of capital and interest within the insurtech space. Even in the the time I've been here, right, it's been a significant uptick. I feel like global venture funds are now deploying more capital into into insurtech than they are fintech on a momentum basis, and that that has been a significant shift in that the venture world is is accelerating in and the question now is, is, is can the, the incumbents almost keep up with that? velocity or the pace that the
0: insure techs are showing. Why do you think that's happened? Right, I have my own view, right? But you've spoken to more people in the last year than I've spoken to in the last three years about this. And can you feel it happening? In other words, if you go back a year and a half or two years when you first started doing this and get a sense for what the insure tech and the investment market was like, when you wake up today, or do you feel like, oh my gosh, did that just happen again kind of feeling? Whereas before you thought no one's paying enough attention kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what the inflection point was, but I think people have started to understand that the size of the prize within insurance um and the <laughs> the the opportunity that exists with, within some of the the incumbent processes, right? They're incredibly I guess, scarce of digitization, hugely fragmented, yeah. and it's just provided and and shown to be you know, a, a huge opportunity from a technology perspective. So, yeah, I'm unsure what the what the inflection of, of that has been. Um, but I guess, you know, you, you look at the the outcomes and there's been numerous unicorns over, over the last year within the InsurTech vertical. We've had the first couple in, in the UK now. So I feel people are starting to see what the end result can be from a venture returns perspective and that in turn propels the, the early stage investment cycle.
0: Okay. So this now gets to be really important. Do you see differences, right? You mentioned unicorns in the UK. You're also looking at the continent of Europe and North America, which I'm presuming includes Canada as well, since there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff going on there too. When you, again, when you wake up every day and look at these markets, what are some of the biggest differences you see between them?
1: Sure. I mean, primarily between the EU and uh, America, I guess its availability and proliferation of capital in the US is, is far more in, in terms of venture dollars than, than Europe. I think that's definitely shifting slightly, but there's a notable noticeable difference in, I guess, the availability of, of early stage capital with growth funds coming down to, to the really early pre-seed and seed stages. Um, you know, we're seeing valuations, I guess, accelerate a, a crazy momentums and and that's kind of the, the biggest start difference just from a, an investor point of view i'd say from the u.s there's also regulatory challenges you have to get through every state is regulated independently yeah in the in america so that's that's a challenge that a lot of insurtechs face uh, whereas you know in the eu you can just either passport in um, through one country or, or get an authorization in the uk so there's there's, there's differences on, on on regulatory challenges but but the the investment mindset is probably the, the biggest difference for me.
0: And gosh, I don't even know if you were doing this before the pandemic happened, but do you see a change since the pandemic happened, not just in the investment landscape, but in the way that insure techs and insurance companies are building product?
1: Well, I, I joined in the pandemic, so I can't I can't offer that that a uh, background, but yeah, I'd say that the insurtechs, and I mean, it's it's more of a general comment on the ability to to get stuff done remotely. I think my only perspective would be from an investor point of view. Um, things are moving a lot quicker on a timescale perspective from a from fundraising. So it's slightly pivoted from your question, but the yeah the the ability to to raise capital remotely is, is is very prevalent and probably the most common now. So the the time timelines and aggressive nature that you can you can raise a around have really been impacted
0: and have you been surprised on your own this ability to communicate remotely and actually allocate capital bring people into the incubator program i'm presuming you don't know this because again you weren't there before the the pandemic but before i'm presuming that part of this was in person right are you are you kind of surprised that it has become easier and easier to do this remotely
1: um, maybe not surprised. Um, I love it personally. Um, I think it's, it's, I'm um, get to meet more, more founders on a global scale, yeah. um, that we wouldn't have, at, have access to before, right? I'm meeting, um, founders in, in South America and North America that, you know, previously it had been very difficult to connect with. So I, I, I like that and all the investments that I've made to date through, through the gateway have been fully remote and, and not met, met the founders in person. So that's been uh, wow. interesting, but I guess for me, it, it's the norm.
0: So you mentioned to me offline, right, that you had grown up kind of all over the place. Do you think it, yeah, and so have I, to be fair. And it's hard to tell by, so I say this about myself, right, it's hard to tell by looking at me that I spent 30 years in Asia. Right? You just can't tell. So if I was walking down the street in New York or walking down the street in London, you wouldn't be able to know that. But I think it changes the way you think about everything, frankly. If you can look at things through... An international experienced lens. Do you think that the way you grew up in Hong Kong, you mentioned in Taiwan, and just around the world, makes you more open to new ideas, and maybe even like a better investor than if you'd just grown up in one place, any place? To be fair, for your whole life. Sure. Yeah,
1: I'd say for me, it's been formative in the fact that my job is a lot of context switching, and having grown up in seven to eight countries. Prior to even university, right? It, it provided that that mindset shift quite early on. Yeah. Um, experiencing new cultures, new people, quite often. You know, I changed school quite quite a lot, so going into kind of new open environments was was quite an experience. And that now my job is to to dive into a room, talking to you know often a domain expert in that field, and, and having to quickly uh, understand and, and and shift my mindset rapidly. So I, I think so definitely, um, and that international experience is is was very
0: important. Yeah, I know. It's definitely helped me a lot. You're right. This whole idea of context switching is actually really important. And I think a lot of people who've just grown up in the same place just find it hard to do because their brain just hasn't had to do that over time. I want to talk to you a little bit about parametric insurance and this kind of combination of parametric insurance and indemnity insurance. I think it was Suvendu Pradhan, actually, who coined the phrase, at least to me, of para-indemnity so i'm curious how you see all these things working together from your perspective
1: yeah i mean we we've been a strong backer of parametric propositions i think we've got four or five in, in the portfolio now so we're, we're definitely you know bullish on the space i think primarily though because it we see is insurance providing you know that certainty and and speed from from a parametric product perspective as being as being the real usp um yeah i think indemnity, indemnity products sure are, are great, but they, they lack, I guess, in the, the swift outcome and, and certainty that the end customer or business will, will require. Um, we have one business called Flood Flash, which looks at flood risk for small businesses. And they you know have a, an IoT parametric product that's, I guess, plugged into these buildings. And you know they, they can provide a, a payout, not from event of claim, but, but from event of flood to pay out in under 9 hours. Wow. I think that is, you know, an incredible accelerant in in the timeline that people are experiencing insurance in. Um so you know, you're not even having to to file the claim, you're getting getting cash in the bank and you know a lot of businesses if they can't get up and running within within the first 5 days after a significant natural catastrophe, you know that they'll, they'll, they'll most likely go out of business. So providing that resilience to businesses through the speed that parametric can offer is is really important and I think part of the the reason why we're seeing adoption really speed up.
0: you mentioned something in passing, and I love when people do this because you're so used to the conversation about parametric that it doesn't seem relevant to you to mention, but this idea that there are sensors in buildings, this idea that there's third party verified data out there that comes into the insurance stack in real time is something that incumbent insurance either hadn't considered or do you know what I mean, or just didn't have a way to build inside of their existing legacy systems? Can you talk about that dichotomy between how InsurTechs can then go out and do that with the verified data streams that they have, and maybe some other data streams that you're looking at, and how incumbents couldn't have done that regardless?
1: Sure, I think it's it's part in part because InsurTechs are much more willing to adopt or or much more able to adopt these technology changes that are happening kind of around us, right? So yeah. the the connected data that we have, the the cloud computing. I think you know there's been a huge advantage and enabler of parametric trying to in, like the computing power required to ingest analyze and, and evaluate the risk of all these connected data sources is is huge especially with the data sets that are available now right um and then you know also you have i guess 5g reducing latency and, and the, the, the time to to claim result all of these factors are enabling um, the likes of parametric to take off And and where i guess the incumbents have been and slow to, slow to innovate on that technology piece.
0: Do you think that there's still a need in the parametric and even the para-indemnity paramindemni, space? Is there an educational component here that's necessary to continually go out and tell people? Because, I mean, pick a year, pick an inflection point, pick anything you want, but up until a certain point, there was no parametric insurance. And I'll be honest with you, I sometimes ask, you know, senior executives at incumbent insurance companies, the same question I just asked you, like what's your view on the growth potential for parametric? And they'll just say, I'm not sure what you mean, <laughs> which is weird. But do you feel like there's an ongoing necessity to educate people, both the consumers of the product and the people that are inside the industry?
1: Absolutely. And that—that that is the great question. We feel that, you know, the primary blocker for, for parametric is that adoption education piece. Right. Um, you know you can have you can have a, an amazing product obviously the technology is enabling it to be 10x better than incumbent solutions but if you don't have that right intervention point in a value chain to get to your customer or to educate them on where the value proposition sits for them you know you won't you won't be successful in our in our view so we really feel that whilst you know from an investment point of view whilst the technology is incredible we almost see that as a, as a given in, in some of these cases right and it's we're more focusing on on the distribution advantage of these insure techs and where they can align themselves with the end customer and provide not only that efficient distribution but how can they acquire customers efficiently and cost effectively so that's kind of where our focus sits on, on that vision
0: yeah i mean that's why i do what i do right i just want people to be informed about things and the more i feel like we can talk about these new products the more people can learn about them and then we can help accelerate the growth of them. Do you, I I feel this way. Like I said to you before, I've done seven, 800 recorded conversations over the past three or so years. You're doing that every year. Do you feel like, and I say this very often, I feel like I can talk to an entrepreneur and just go, "Mm, it's not going to work. Even if the idea is great, pretty quickly, like do you get a sense that the more more conversations you have, the more you can figure out like if someone is going to succeed or not or has the... Propensity to succeed, do you know what I mean? And maybe if that's a yes, like what are the traits that you can tell that makes and I'll tell you what happened to me today as well. When you're done, so you can see what I mean.
1: (laughs) Sure. I mean, my excitement hasn't hasn't waned. I think you know I'm incredibly fortunate that my my role is to meet with all these these founders, and they're incredibly exciting. I think a large part of venture is pattern recognition, for sure. For sure. You know, especially I'm focusing on on one vertical. I can, I can see 10 to 20, you know, automotive, uh, automated vehicle insurance propositions or e-commerce merchant businesses, um, looking at the tech space and you, you do start to build out pattern recognitions on, on business proposition. But from a founder perspective, I guess there's a range of, a range of soft factors that, that come into play kind of looking at the kind of, I like to learn, you know, the story behind them, what's the genesis of the idea why they want to go out and build you know, this, this insurance business, it's not something that most people wake up to and want to do. So I kind of understand, want to understand what's the what? what's the driver behind them and how they're going to get there. Yeah. I think that's, that's really important, especially at the, the pre-seed stage that we look at. It's a lot to do with market uh, team and product kind of almost in that order actually. Um, so yeah, that, especially at the really early ideation stage of a business that that for us is, is, is paramount.
0: So if you're investing at the seed stage, My contention has always been that you're just funding an experiment, right? So you're not funding growth, because if it's seed stage, then you don't really know if it's going to work yet. If you're Series A, Series B, Series C, we can talk about how that's different than seed stage. I also think it's the place where there's the most risk, because you just don't know, right? That's why I love it so much. And this is why I love, frankly, talking to seed stage companies almost more than I like talking to Series B and Series C companies, I feel like there's more to learn is that fair?
1: absolutely I think yeah I, I heard an investor the other day say you know we see dots not lines or you know at the at that that seed stage so yeah. it's definitely you know a, a bit more of a, of a guess but we look for you know domain experts within their field um, exciting tech enabled MVPs and and that initial pilot stage potentially at, at the seed stage so you have a route to be successful and yeah. but yes it is often. You know, to be determined whether, whether you'll gain traction, but yeah, I agree at the, at the series A, B stage, you, you kind of would look, to, hopefully to, to have that, that product market fit there and to understand kind of who your customer is. So we, that's what we really focus on kind of who's going to buy this and, you know, how, you know, how are you going to acquire them? Uh, insurance is, is one of the most, you know, I think it is the most expensive, Google search ad, you can you can buy at the moment just given the amount of money from incumbents that's put into to direct marketing. Right, but yeah, I think there's for sure a lot more risk at, at that pre-seed and seed, uh, but that's what
0: makes it, that's what
1: makes it exciting as well.
0: Exactly, that's what makes it so much fun for me. Do you also, as a firm, as a, as the gateway, maintain relationships with later stage investment companies so that then you can feed your investments into them and Again, if you're building a relationship with someone, they should trust you as much as you trust your investee companies, right? So that becomes more effective and efficient as a methodology for getting funding for your companies.
1: Sure. So do you mean with, with later stage venture funds? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We, we maintain strong relationships with them. And we find that because we're a sector specialist, often we partner with These these larger growth funds um, and larger larger agnostic funds they they want to have the kind of sector specialists on the ground as as they're putting money in Um, so we we have a a quite kind of collaborative relationship I'd say with with the rest of the ecosystem Um, if you're you know an agnostic um, uh, multi stage fund it's it's quite nice to validate almost the the insurance piece of the puzzle for the the scaling of the business yeah Um, and yeah we we work with all of those guys at, at the later stages I think five or six of our portfolio have gone on to raise their series a this year so that's been that's been really exciting and kind of right. watching them have relationships with with late stage investors and and kind of getting everyone else excited what we've been seeing for the last kind of three four years is, is great
0: it's just so cool when one of your sort of portfolio companies gets funded by somebody else as well just not just the validation but just the fun and excitement that's involved in that right it's just kind of cool
1: yeah, it's brilliant because you get to you bring another, I guess, um, set of experiences and, and thoughts to the table on the board, especially partnering with kind of large U.S. funds. And you get that different mindset shift of, OK, we've got from zero to one or one to five now. How do we get to 100? And it's that mindset shift of, OK, how do we really start to scale and motor this business across geography, across product sets? Um, so it is really interesting to see kind of that, that growth and, and scaling mindset come into play um, at the Series A and B.
0: Okay. The last thing I want to ask you is about distributed ledger technology. What role do you think it plays today in the insure tech space? And what do you see going forward? I see a lot of companies in the region where I live developing solutions on, they'll call it a blockchain, but you understand what I mean, right? So where do you see it today? And where do you see it going, you think?
1: Yeah, this is one of my my most passionate uh, sectors. I I love it. Um, I think you know, we've made two bets within, I guess, digital assets if you, if you call it that. Yeah. Um, looking at um, wallets or all risk management on-chain. On um I think there is an absolutely huge opportunity. I think it's still kind of nascent in terms of market timing. Um, you know, insurers and, and the incumbents have been slow to to innovate and to adopt all of these new technologies, I guess off-chain and quote unquote the real world. So to get them kind of on board with this distributed ledger ecosystem is going to be a challenge but it's definitely one of the futures of, of insurance vertical i think you know we've talked about parametric i mean a lot of smart contracts are built on that infrastructure yep they they're a perfect match from a from a smart contract it is a binary zero one similar with a trigger at zero one so i think there's a, a natural synergy between some existing product insurance product lines and and, um, and distributed ledger i think people have Seen the kind of cost efficiencies you can get from loss adjustment on on a crowd platform, um, so yeah, I'm I'm incredibly excited about the opportunity and a, a space where we're
0: keen to to do more in. Do you feel like there's a generation gap? Like, did I don't know what the right gen is, but like between Gen Z and Gen X or millennials, that they're just so much more interested and so much more attuned to what's happening in the distributed ledger space. In other words, do you have to convince people? In your area, like you really need to pay attention to this because I'm involved in it on a day to day basis, and you might have missed thing X or thing Y that's happening. No, I don't. I don't think it's a generational thing. I think it's uh, keeping up
1: to date. Right? Like I've only really delved into it in the last couple of years, and what I've noticed is if you step out of it for, for three to four months, you're you're out of date. Right? It, it is moving. It's moving at such a pace that even you know someone of a younger age get completely lost yeah uh, you know we have partners who are in and amongst the space and you know they're, they're really knowledgeable and and attuned with, with what's happening uh, so i would i mean I, I guess more generally statistically you could say it was a generational thing uh, but from my experience it's been just kind of how how involved can you be within the space and, and keeping
0: up to date with it yeah do you want to talk at all about coin cover
1: yeah, I mean, CoinCover is great and, and David and the team they're building is, is really interesting. They've just gone and raised their Series A this year. This year. Um, and I think that that is a, a perfect example of kind of where they're providing that institutional grade cover um, for the, the digital asset space. You know, it's to get large incumbents, asset managers or, or serious investors into the space. They need that. Again, I could mention it today, that certainty or that, that resilience within your model and, and CoinCover are providing the protection against loss or theft on that digital asset wallet. So it provides that, that certainty that you'd get kind of in in real markets again, um, on a, on a digital asset space. So we're really excited about that one. And
0: yeah, the opportunity in this space actually seems huge to me in the same way that parametric and, you know, cloud-based insurance is definitely going to be gigantic. But if you look at digital assets and the fractionalization of physical assets, is there a fractionalization aspect to insurance that can also cover the portion of that fractionalization that you own as opposed to just insuring the entire asset and then having somebody parse that out to the people that have participated in the fractionalization, if that makes sense.
1: That's a brilliant uh, thought. I think, yeah, I I haven't seen any propositions looking at the fractionalization, but I guess it equates quite nicely with almost usage based insurance and and how that, that, that interchanges, right. It's uh, you know, if you're talking about like NFTs and ensuring ensuring that um, ownership, it would almost be, you know your your usage of of, of a chain, etc. So, for sure, I think that there's a huge kind of emerging digital risk there, um, and that's a, a protection gap that I'm sure insurance and insurance will will look to fill.
0: So this is actually kind of cool. I'll tell you exactly what I'm talking about. It just it, it this is not the first time I've thought about this. I forget the name of the company that runs this, but there's something called Aspen Coin. And what they did was they fractionalized the ownership in a resort or a hotel in Aspen, Colorado, I believe. But because it's tradable, that means that I can own it today and not own it tomorrow. And because tokens and tokenization allows for anything to get programmed into that token, you can also have the insurance included inside that tokenization as well for my portion of the ownership on that thing. So if it burns down... I'm entitled to a certain amount of compensation, which could also be parametric if you want to combine all these things together. So you have the tokenization aspect, the parametric aspect, and the digitalization and fractionalization of a physical asset. So you're just including all of these things into one thing, and since you can program it into the token, that to me seems something that would be really cool. Does that make sense?
1: I agree, and that is, that is the I guess, the, the phrase, you know, embedded insurance has been thrown around a lot. That is the exact type of embedded nature that we're really excited about. Um, yeah, you know same. that's kind of wrap, wrapping the insurance protection around an existing product and not just, you know, providing you a know, point of sale tick box for, yeah, for insurance, yeah. but, but wrapping it in the entire value proposition of, of that fractional ownership. That's something that, you know, we'd, we'd be really excited about.
0: Yeah. And I'll leave you with this too, because it's programmable, you can actually, even on the same bit of tokenization, you can separate the ownership of the asset from the ownership of the insurance. And as the arbitrage gets created between the value of what people think that insurance should be, that can also be traded. And that to me is super cool. Anyway, so this was awesome. for me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Oliver Lane, really the good. head of deal flow at InsurTech Gateway in London. This was really awesome. Thank you so much for doing this today.
1: Thanks very much, Michael. Yes.